Welcome to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog guardians. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm a certified professional dog trainer and I take my 10 years of training experience and I share easy to implement dog training advice with an emphasis on kindness and compassion. Welcome. I'm so excited to share more. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am so glad that you are listening today. So in today's episode, I'm going to share a replay of a conversation I had with Juliana, who's a wonderful dog trainer. We talk all about stranger danger. But before I jump into that, I just want to check in, say, hey, hope you're all doing well. Things are great here in Colorado. We love summer. Me and the dogs have been adventuring, camping, hiking, paddleboarding, and hit has been awesome. We're really just soaking in every single moment. Reactive Redefined is in full swing and it has been such a delight to get to know all of these new teams and support them and bring everybody together in the group calls. So yeah, things are going well. I hope you all are also well and please enjoy today's replay episode. Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am your host, Rachel Ari Harris. I'm so glad that you're here. If you are here, my guess is that your dog probably uh, behaves with some stranger danger. And we're going to talk all about that today. And because I love collaborating with other trainers and I recognize that I don't know everything, I have a special guest who is very well-versed in stranger danger. And we're just going to, we're going to hit it from both sides. You guys, we're going to give you so much information. So do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners? I sure will. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, everybody. I am Juliana DeWillems of JW Dog Training. Uh, So we're based in the Washington, D.C. area, but we see virtual clients all over the country. And we work exactly like you said, Rachel, on everything from you know, puppies and basic manners to some of the more stranger danger, reactivity, aggression cases that unfortunately, as we were just talking about, are becoming more and more prevalent these days. <laughs> yeah. So um, for everyone listening who has a pandemic puppy and you're starting to see some of the behaviors, just know you're not alone, right? Like it's kind of the norm. The world was crazy. We didn't get to do everything we wanted with the dogs and that's okay. But we want to kind of talk about how we can troubleshoot some of that stuff now. So stranger danger is a pretty broad label. So I think let's start by talking about maybe defining some behaviors that would present that maybe would fall under like the stranger danger label that we're talking about. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you even thought to define what that label means because so many clients come to us say, Our, my dog is reactive. My dog is aggressive. And it's like, okay, well, let's talk about what that means. My dog is scared. So a lot of times that's going to, I mean, the number one indicator, I feel like most obvious for dog, for pet parents is that the dog doesn't want to approach somebody or doesn't want to go say hi. And that can look either like they're not approaching or they're actively avoiding, which is a very clear, actually, no, thank you. I do not want to approach. Yeah. And I think that it can be on a spectrum, right? So like maybe some of the, maybe it's not presenting as like loud and forward, right? Like the dog is clearly avoiding, they have no interest in going to people and then it kind of can escalate from there. Right. So maybe if they're not feeling quote unquote heard, meaning like they try and avoid, but that doesn't get them the outcome that they want, they may increase to, barking, lunging, um, 
But I think something that's interesting that I think all of you wonderful people listening should take note of is even if your dog is acting more forward, right? Like they're going towards the dog, barking, lunging, what is the rest of the body telling us, right? Because I think oftentimes with like the stranger danger, especially if it's rooted a lot in fear is like, yes, they're barking and lunging, but they are on their toes and they are ready to run away at any moment. Absolutely. And those dogs that I'm so glad you mentioned fear because dogs that are barking and lunging can look so big and bad, but it's the same emotion that's driving the cowering and the hiding and the moving away. And people don't realize that, but you know, as you know, we've got three options, fight, flight, or freeze when dogs are scared. And so a lot of that barking lunging is that fight that you're seeing, but the flight avoidance, moving away, cowering, hiding, that's all the same I'm uncomfortable and I I need something about this to change. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's one of those that we don't want to punish our dogs for displaying how they clearly feel, but we need to take into account like, okay, cool. If you feel this uncomfortable, we need to do something about this, right? And okay, so let's talk just a little bit about age ranges because I think sometimes people are like, oh, they'll grow out of it, right? Like they'll get used to people. It's not a big deal. Uh, Spoiler alert. Not true. They don't. They grow <laughs> into it. Oh no. <laughs> ah, yikes. <laughs> so um, so I think that for me, when I'm working with the dog, if I have a dog who is like puppy puppy, like eight weeks to like six months in that general age range, if I'm seeing any sort of like stranger danger presenting, like you have a really beautiful window of opportunity to mold and change how our dogs are feeling emotionally. So if you have a young dog and they are presenting stranger danger, please don't wait thinking that they're going to grow out of it because they're not. And if you can get in there now, we have a, can be a little bit more potent, especially like in the earlier age range to help shift their emotional response to things. Right. Because once they hit what we call social maturity, which is a different age for, you know, small dogs hit social maturity earlier, large dogs hit social maturity later. But once you hit that social maturity, they're out of adolescence, they're in adulthood, it's going to be much harder to change behavior and to change those emotional responses. It's a little, I mean, it's challenging no matter when you do it, but you're absolutely right that earlier is certainly better when it comes to intervention. Yeah. And I think something to keep in mind with like our young puppies is that Young puppies are not barking because of nothing, right? And like, I think that sometimes there's this misconstrued, like, oh, they're just excited. Are they really just excited though? If they're barking at people consistently, right? So like, I think that that's really important that we're not just glossing over like, oh yeah, they're just barky. Sometimes they bark at people. Like we really need to look at what is the function of the barking? What is the emotion that's lying beneath this surface behavior? Because again, if we can troubleshoot it when they're young, we have a much higher chance of them being able to cope with strangers in the future. Right. And that's where looking at body language is so critical because if you're guessing that the barking is rooting in excitement, well, then you would hope to see wiggly loose body language where it's approaching the person. But if you're seeing the barking paired with a tense body, retreating, tail tuck, maybe hackles up, obviously that tells a very different picture. And and we just have to look at the dogs and and what they're saying. Yeah. And I think that's something that Um, I see come up a lot in dogs who present for stranger danger is a lot of conflict, 
right? And like, sometimes the body language can be confusing for both the human and the dog is confused too, right? They're like, do I want to approach this person? Oh my God, this person came closer. That's not really what I wanted. Okay, but I do want to gather information. Okay, but now they're coming closer. So like, it really is a sliding scale, everyone. And I think that if you are at all concerned, you are way better erring on the side of caution than just assuming the dog is just excited. Absolutely. And you're totally right. Emotions are fluid, meaning your dog might be curious one moment and then startled and nervous the next moment. Patricia McConnell just posted something so good. And it was actually about dog bites and children. But I think the quote was, um, invites decrease dog bites, meaning inviting the dog to you instead of going to the dog decreases the chances for a bite. And here where you're talking about a dog might be conflicted. If you're worried at all that they're not hundred percent comfortable in approaching you, let them come to you on their own terms, invite them to you instead of you going to them. Yeah. And I think like as the dog guardian, it, it presents like kind of an awkward conversation sometimes when you have to be like, do not come closer to this dog, right? But you have to advocate for your dog because especially the dogs who struggle with stranger danger, if time and time again, their warnings, their body language is being disregarded by the human, the likelihood of them escalating to behaviors that they feel quote unquote more heard is definitely higher, right? If you continue to avoid and continue to avoid, and the person is continuing to not listen to what you're saying, you're going to increase to more measures to get the space that you want. So, you know, that's just a super important thing as the dog guardian to be an advocate, even if that means having some awkward conversations. Absolutely. And I totally empathize with people. It is awkward to tell you know, your mom or your best friend who loves dogs, like, Hey, you know, my dog actually might be uncomfortable, might be nervous. Like, could you please not do that? I just a couple, and actually it's what prompted this conversation. I posted like a handout basically that you can send to people that gives points for your, how to deal with your fearful dog. And I feel like a lot of times one, writing it down is so important, but two, sending it ahead of time or texting it or emailing it or something and saying, Hey, just FYI, here are some tips for dealing with fluffy can take some of the pressure off you, or at the very least do some of the work for you so that people kind of know what to expect once they come into the house. Absolutely. I love that form of like subtle communication. So we can take a little bit of pressure off of the dog guardian who may be feeling like already kind of uncomfortable about the whole situation. Yeah. So everyone will be sure to link up the post that she's talking about in the show notes. Um, yeah, because, you know, I thought I was like, we just need to talk about strange behavior on the podcast. <laughs> totally. And, you know, we had, we might go into this more, but like a big reason that stranger danger is so prevalent right now, unfortunately, is like you mentioned at the beginning, these pandemic puppies, unfortunately, just have not had the exposure, especially during that critical socialization window between eight and 16 weeks to the world around them. I mean, if any of us had popped out a year ago, we would not have been exposed to the normal world. And unfortunately, those early experiences or lack thereof have a direct impact on their behavior as an adult. So it's just an unfortunate byproduct of this great wave of people adopting dogs during the pandemic. Yeah, so I think that this is a really good point. So let's talk about some other common motivations. So 
everyone, we are speaking broadly here. While we wish we could give you specific advice, that is reserved for when you work with us one-on-one. -on -one. So we're going to speak broadly here, but um, so some motivations can definitely just be from like a lack of early experience, right? Like they just didn't see people. They didn't have people in the house. Um, let's talk about some other motivations for stranger danger that you observe in your clients. Well, definitely a negative experience. So in addition to a lack of experience during socialization, having a bad experience at any point. So, so add to the list of things that trainers hate that the general public does are these like stupid pranks where you, I don't know if you've seen it, but you know, they'll pretend like someone's breaking into the house or something like that. And it's totally, yes, oh it's totally God. nuts. I know. And so, but anything like that, like if, and I've heard of clients who have actual had break-ins where now their dog is startled, experience some kind of post-traumatic stress. Um, so it, in addition to a lack of experiences, negative experience can be really bad too. Yeah. Okay. And in addition to that, I think that genetic predispositions are real, right? They are not everything, but they are contributing factors, right? So um, we were talking about the, a little bit about this before that in Colorado, we get a lot of dogs who come on transport from rural locations, a lot of reservations. And I think in those circumstances, kind of the combination of coming here on transport at an early age, which is scary, maybe having a negative experience, even though it wasn't meant to by rescue, just like pulling them and doing things that obviously they need to do to save their lives, but nonetheless are still perceived as aversive from the puppies. And then their genetic predisposition, some of those feral genetics, that can also manifest itself in some stranger danger stuff, right? So your dog's genetics definitely play a role in the behavior that we're seeing. And I don't know the exact science behind it, but I think we're pretty positive that genetics outweigh socialization. So you're really only puppies and young dogs are not blank slates, let alone, of course, a dog who you bring into your life uh, older, but you know, those genetics and, and if the parents were two feral dogs, or if the parents, if mom, um, experienced a lot of stress in utero, you know, all these things contribute, unfortunately, to who the dog ends up being starting at eight weeks and beyond. And we just have absolutely no control over that. Yeah. Well, and we know definitively that fear imprints in DNA and carries through many generations, right? We know that in people. I don't know if we know that definitively in dogs. I guess we should say we know that in people for sure, right? So I guess we could draw the assumption that th that is the same in dogs. So, you know, for those of you listening who maybe felt like you did everything in your power to make sure that your dog had early positive experiences, you did as much social socialization as you could, it may not be anything that you actually could have influenced, right? Sometimes it just is who they are. And I think something else that, you know, is a little gray in, in defining because there's so many factors, but I do find that some breeds and genetic combinations are more predisposed to some of like the territorial motivations, meaning like, this is my space. What the hell are you doing in my space? And I find that that can present as stranger danger often too. Totally. And I think sometimes, well, and I would be curious your take on this, like when it does come down to a reason behind stranger danger, like, does it really affect kind of how we treat it? Um, but I think some, uh, some of the severe cases I've seen, it's been helpful to get a veterinary behaviorist input because they can give a lot of guidance. And I have had, it's less common, but I have had a few clients diagnosed with territorial aggression. Um, typically they lean towards, you know, 
fear related anxiety, stuff like that. But I have, like you said, seen some of that territorial aggression. Yeah. And like, I think that something that obviously like getting a veterinary behaviorist on board, always helpful, right? Like, because they're going to give us so much insight, but you know, questions that I often ask once I know the dog's breed. So like, maybe it's a breed that I feel like is probably more predisposed to territorial behavior. So like some sort of like mastiff, mastiff breed or mastiff cross. I always ask like, how is the dog with people outside of the home? And if the answer is the dog is like happy to interact and all of that, but it's only happening in the home, that's really when I'd be like, okay, with that information, we're gonna treat this more of a territorial motivation than a fear motivation. Obviously we cannot just say that it's always just one thing, right? Because that's not the way that it works, right? Like everything is fluid. But you know, I think that if you are listening and you're thinking like, is it just territorial motivation? You have to look at how your dog is interacting with people in other circumstances, because if your dog is completely quote unquote fine, meaning body language is loose, they'll greet people, they'll accept pets with no issue. It's only happening in the home. Well, there's some more information that we can use to formulate a training plan. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, you said my least favorite word, fine, right? Like, are we seeing a lack of reaction? Are are they like a little shut down? Are they truly enjoying people? Are they not feeling as empowered to act on their fear because they're not in their safe space? Exactly like you said, we would need more information. And this is why you know, working one-on-one with clients is so critical. We cannot, I mean, it's not ethical to do this anyway, but we can't give information over Instagram or to a family friend or, you know, to somebody on the street who wants dog training advice, which unfortunately happens a lot. Um, But we just can't treat issues like this without knowing a great deal of information. Right. And like, that is our due diligence, right? Is like taking a very in-depth behavior history, right? Like, what do we know about the dog? What do we know about how the dog behaves in certain circumstances? But I think that the point that you bring up about the dog being quote unquote fine, right? Like oftentimes dog guardians, not maliciously, but they're missing the fact that the dog is actually shutting down, right? The fact that we're seeing behavior doesn't not seeing behavior, doesn't mean that the dog is fine, right? So I think that that is really something that is hard to digest from the dog guardian standpoint, right? Is like the dog is fine in these circumstances. Well, the dog actually isn't fine. The dog is actually shut down and they're not seeing behavior. You're not seeing behavior from them. And that's the distinguishing factor, right? So these are things that, you know, as the dog guardian, you do, you have to be a detective. you got to take notes. I always encourage people like, where's your training journal? What did you write down about that day? Like what was important? What was relevant? What was different for the dog? And can we extrapolate some stuff there that we can use to inform some of the behavior modification we do going forward? Absolutely. And we also urge pet parents to educate themselves as much as possible on canine body language. Cause so much of it, I mean, and we've said it like a zillion times already canine body language is, is really where so much of the information lies because that's where when your dog is not reacting or maybe not biting or not growling. So not doing behavior where to an untrained eye, the dog might look fine. Well, you know, somebody who understands a little bit more about body language might be seeing the lip licks, might be seeing the whale eye, might be seeing the yawning and noticing, oh, wow, wait a second. Out of my three, four options, fear, um, fight, flight, freeze, or fidgets, another one, but fight, flight, or freeze. Wow. I'm seeing this actually looks like it might be the freeze category. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously every dog is an individual, right. And like, just because you have a breed that maybe is more, more susceptible or more prone to territorial motivations doesn't always mean that that's going to ring true. But I think that it's really important that you do more research on your individual dog's breed, right? And like, I'd love to hear your perspective on this too, but like, I find that Mastiffy type dogs, right? Whether they're purebred or there's some mix in there, oftentimes livestock guardian breeds, right? Or some sort of mix sometimes shepherds, right? German shepherds and Australian shepherds in particular, I find that they are a little bit more prone to some of that territorial stuff. And knowing that about the breed and taking a behavior history, I'm, I'm going to do something different for those dogs than I would for, you know, our mixed breed dog who's not really prone to territorial behavior and is very clearly afraid and fearful of strangers. Totally. And I actually have a story about a livestock guardian dog really quick, but it's, this was a great Pyrenees. It was, so being in Washington, DC, a dense city environment, it's hard for even the most stable dog. Now you put a stinking livestock guardian dog in a basically row home in Northwest, the busy part of DC. And of course it's not going to go well. Now this was a couple years ago And I didn't know quite as much as I know now. And it's so interesting looking back. I'm like, oh my gosh, why did we even try that? But the dog was surprise guarding the house, barking at people, not letting people come in, barking in the yard all day long. And we would do all of these things to try to change the behavior and this and this intervention and this intervention. We were literally trying to make the dog be a breed. It was not. And looking back, I wish I had had a very honest conversation with the pet parents saying, guys, this dog is, is doing exactly what he is bred to be doing. And no amount of behavior modification is going to change this. So I just, you know, you're absolutely right. It's why, um, you know, like Kim Brophy, all of her work, her book, uh, what is it? No, no, your dog get to know your, your dog. dog. Yeah. So Eat all the listeners have heard me say that title a million times. <laughs> <laughs> because it's just, you're absolutely right. It's just so important. Right. So I think for some of the dogs who are <clears throat> more prone to the territorial stuff, take the territory out of the equation when you're trying to bring new people into their lives never discount how effective just one simple change in environment can be. And, you know, I don't want to kid you all that it's just like, oh yeah, just meet them outside and everything's going to be fine because that isn't the truth, but changing up the sequence of events and not expecting our dog just to be fine with people coming in the house can have a huge impact on the behavior that we're trying to modify. And if we can't modify it, if we're trying to manage it. And something that you just said made me think of uh, something else, which is people who, you know, call us because their dog is not being friendly or not, not um, accepting strangers in the home. But then they say, well, I like when they bark at somebody or I want them to keep an intruder out of the house. And knowing, unfortunately, I don't think there's really a way to safely have it both ways that if you don't want your dog to bite your friends, you can't, you can't um, have, ask your dog to understand who's a friend and who's not a friend, who's an intruder. Right. And like, that's a human construct, right? Like, I don't think that that's something that we can define for our dogs. Right. And like, 
you know, not all dogs barking inside are, are going to bite the people coming inside, but it's such a good point. Right. And like something that I tried to convey to my clients is that like, you don't need a guard dog, right? You don't need a guard dog. You don't, you need a, just a pet. You just need a pet. And like, if they bark at people going by sometimes, and maybe that's menacing and those people don't break in, like, that's great. But like, I think especially everyone who's listening to this podcast right now, you did not get a dog to like purely protect your home, right? That was not in your intention in getting a dog. So I think that, yeah, definitely like uh, managing human expectations and realizing that like, you don't want that. You really don't want a dog who has sketchy feelings about people coming in the house because ultimately not safe for you. And it could be a liability too. Absolutely. And the good news is that the beware of dog sign that you put in your window is probably just as, if not more effective than whatever's on the inside of the house. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about kind of examining some of the motivations for the dog and letting that inform like what we do as a training plan. So like example, the dog is clearly afraid of the person and rearranging the environment so that the dog doesn't feel the pressure to interact with the person or managing the person and making sure they're not encroaching on the dog's space. Absolutely. And I think across the board, when it comes to this label of stranger danger, removing that pressure, there's never going to be a a point where that's not a good idea, especially initially, whether it's to relieve the pressure from your dog who's fearful, or it's changing the environment when your guest first comes in to take the pressure off yourself as the human who's in charge. It's never a bad idea to figure out something where your dog is not right there in the mix right away initially. And then however long you continue that after your guest comes inside, that's up to you and depends on your dog and their needs. But I think initially, especially taking that dog out of the equation for that initial greeting can be very critical. Yeah. And I think that coming to terms with there's nothing wrong with rearranging the environment. If your dog is not successful, when people just come directly in the house, don't keep practicing that. It's not going to get better, right? Like there's nothing wrong with rearranging the environment so that everyone can be more successful. And I love so much what you said about like the human end of it too. We got to take some of the pressure off of the person because if you're stressed, that is not going to help the dog, right? Like, and not that that's directly going to stress the dog out, but you being worried and stressed about what's going to happen when someone comes in, definitely not good for the dog either. A hundred percent. And behaviors, just like we practice training with our dogs to, to get behaviors to become fluid and, or fluent and, um, uh, well rehearsed and understood, we have to do that for ourselves as well. You know, the, you can practice your greeting protocol or your guests coming over till you're blue in the face. But once there's actually a person at the door and your dog is actually reacting or, or whatever, it, it takes a, a lot of, um, practice and understanding exactly what you need to do to, to kind of keep your bearings in that situation. It's the first place where everything might go out the window. Yeah. And I think that we have to acknowledge what we need as primates. We need to be able to look people in the eye and welcome them, welcome them into the house, right? Like 
that is normal behavior for us. And I find that like, you know, Waylon doesn't have stranger danger. Waylon has just like, I'm going to be a psycho at the front door and charge people. He has no malicious intentions, just overzealous. And that's so hard for me because when people come to my house, I want to be like, oh my gosh, how are you? I want to hug them. And when I'm focused on the dog, I feel like that takes away from like the experience that I seek when people come over. So like for everyone listening, if your dog struggles with stranger danger, give yourself grace, change up the environment so that like you can do what you need to do with your people. And then we can kind of work in what needs to happen with the dog. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I think, you know, we're such big advocates for filling dogs needs, but you're absolutely right. We have to fill human needs as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about some different, like general, general strategies, um, people could use, like, let's, let's talk specifically about dogs who have stranger danger and are super triggered by strangers coming into the home. Let's talk about some creative solutions and rearranging the environment and maybe just like some general outlines for setups that we can give people that they can try. And again, you guys, this is never meant to be a a substitute for working with a professional. If your dog has escalated to biting to someone, you have to talk to a professional first. Like, I'm sorry, y'all. Like, there's no way around it. You need to, you need our help. We specialize in this. We've devoted our lives to it. Like, just let us help you. But let's give some general examples here. Well, we've talked about it a little bit already, but management is number one thing to implement and to focus on so that you're and you also mentioned this already, you're immediately stopping the rehearsal of that unwanted behavior. So when, if your dog is showing reactive behaviors, barking, lunging, hiding, whatever it is around strangers, how can we immediately stop that? And um, so managing, so that means some type of physical separation, whether that's a gate, a crate, or a separate room, or putting them in the yard, there you have a lot of options for physically getting your dog out of the space of where the guests will be. Um, but depending on your dog's comfort level with separation, being in a crate, being on the other side of the gate, like that all will come down to your individual dog. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, kind of to piggyback off of the management piece, it's not just removing them for the equation, but it's also setting it up so that our dog has something else to do in that equation. Because sometimes I find that like people have already been like putting the dog in the crate, but then the dog is just barking and losing their shit in the crate. And that isn't actually making things better either. So management with some sort of like enrichment or something to occupy their time, that's kind of like the secondary to the management, right? Like, okay, what's the formal management we can put in place, but then what are we going to give the dog to do instead of just freaking out behind the barrier or in the crate? Right. And threshold is an hugely important piece to this, whether it's management or when you actually start doing training and threshold is basically the intensity of a, of a trigger or stimuli that your dog can handle without starting to react. So I would potentially tell a client, like if you put your dog in a crate and they are still barking or are still very agitated, well, is there a place we can put that crate or is there something we can do to the crate in addition to adding the enrichment where your dog wouldn't be able to actually even perceive that the person is the the stranger is in the home. So I usually recommend, you know, covering crates and white noise machines and in a separate room. So really giving the dog basically like a um, sensory void (laughs) place where they can just go and turn off and not even have to perceive the trigger until you're ready to do the training. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think for those of you listening who have maybe like a home setting that you've got like lots of square footage, leverage that square footage. Like can the crate be as far away from the entrance of the house as possible? Right. So like, I think that that is important. And I think remembering everyone that management is a short-term strategy, not a long-term strategy, because if every time people come over, you put the dog in the crate, that can also kind of shoot you in the foot. Cause then they're not going to want to go in the crate because they know what's happening. Right. So like, there's definitely some room for error there, but yeah, I think really leveraging, like, can there be white noise on so the dog doesn't even like really know that someone is there. And I think for those of you listening that maybe have like a smaller square footage situation happening, um, maybe you do something outside together first and come in, right? Like, I think that that can also be a super effective strategy. So, um, you know, Wayland struggles with people coming to the house. So what we do is when people are coming, they text me, we meet them outside, we go for a stroll and then we come in together. So I've just completely eliminated the setup where he could be triggered and I just rearrange it, right? And that's not going to be right for every dog, but I think that looking creatively, like, it doesn't even have to be in the house. Could we do this somewhere else and be successful too? You're absolutely right that sometimes it does take thinking outside the box or thinking outside the norm because, and I can't remember, you might've mentioned this before we started recording, but basically letting go of the expectation that our dogs just need to be fine with people walking right in the house, at least initially, at least for a while into the behavior modification process. I mean, that's a really challenging thing for them to have to be able to accept is especially if they are can be a little nervous is strangers just walking into their home that's not easy for them to be comfortable with right away and so what can you do to do that introduction that helps them be more comfortable if the traditional walking right into the house is not working for them yeah. And like, if your dog struggles with confinement as it is, I wouldn't advise that. Right. And like, you know, you were, we were talking about this before we started recording, right. That you're helping your clients get help on teaching the dog to be separated before you, we, we even bring a stranger into the home. Right. And sometimes that has to be the baseline. Sometimes we have to teach the dog how to be comfortable in confinement before we can get to anything else. Because like we've mentioned a bunch of times before, you're simply not going to make progress if the dog is continuously put into situations where they go over threshold and they're uncomfortable and they're scared and they're having a negative experience. And that's so important for people to understand that the reason we rely on management is meaning separating the dog, at least for portions of the stranger being over, is so that the dog can, we can create an environment where the dog starts to only have good experiences. And so initially it might be your dog is away in another room or in a crate for somebody's over for an hour and your dog's away for 55 minutes, except for the five minutes that they come out and they have a good experience. And then they go back again because then your dog is only having a good experience, creating positive associations and practicing desirable behaviors versus not having a way to get them out of the situation, having them out for a full hour where they're being scared, being triggered, practicing unwanted behavior, potentially practicing reactivity and aggression. And that's going to get you to your goal much slower or not at all. Yeah. And I think for everyone listening, maybe, you know, life is changing, right? A lot of things are opening back up. We're gathering again. If your dog is struggling, maybe your option is that dog goes to a trusted family member and stays there for the day. And we don't expect them to tolerate everyone coming over. Right. So, um, 
my sister-in-law, shout out to Holly. She's amazing. She has a dog called Penny who came from New Mexico. She's got some stranger danger genetics and she had a graduation party. Well, she has the luxury of her sister-in-law as a dog trainer. So I went over with the intention of solely managing Penny, right? So I think that you got to just leverage every resource you have, right? And if your sister-in-law isn't a dog trainer, maybe your dog goes and stays at a boarding facility you trust for the day, right? So like, if your dog is struggling with stranger danger and you're planning on having a barbecue tomorrow, please don't expect your dog to be successful there. Like that's just way too much to ask. And from the human end, if you want to be, have fun with your friends and not be worried about the dog, just know that the dog is somewhere safe, right? And that might not be the house for the day. And I think it's so important to remember that when our dogs are showing us they're uncomfortable around guests, they don't want to be in these large gatherings or parties or out for a long time with your guests. They would much rather be in a quiet, safe place, not near all the scary humans. And so putting our dog's needs first, of course, we want to set them up for success. But if we also take a look at, well, what would they choose to do? My guess is if they have stranger danger and they're scared of people or they're uncomfortable around guests, they're not going to want to be out at the party. They're not going to want to be around all those people. Yeah. Right. So I think you just have to evaluate your individual dog. And like we were talking about before, oftentimes the veterinary behaviorist is an essential part of this equation, right? Sometimes there's stuff happening neurologically with the dog that like, no matter what we do, we aren't going to change that. Right. So sometimes, right. That medication intervention is essential to making progress. Right. So I think that sometimes my clients feel this guilt, like they failed the dog and now we need to intervene with meds, like let go of that. That's not serving you. That is not serving the dog. Right. Welcome to 2021 where we know how effective medication can be and making the behavior change that we need, like utilize that leverage that. Right. Because I think that the sooner we can get a veterinary behaviorist on board and they can do their magic as far as like prescribing and dosing and all of that, the sooner we're going to see the results that we're after. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And just like you with seeing so many stranger danger, reactivity, aggression cases, and seeing the magic that can happen when we get a veterinary behaviorist involved, so many of my clients end up saying, I wish I had done it sooner. And this can be really critical for dogs who go over threshold at the site or the um, perception of any person in their house, no matter what. There's no way to get them somewhere quiet and safe if somebody's over. Or if your dog, unfortunately, has had a severe, even a not severe bite, if your dog has landed a bite on a stranger in your home, another reason to see a vet behaviorist, there's, you know, there's no reason for a veterinary behaviorist to be a, a last, like a last stop or a last resort because the, the help that they can bring. And it's not a saying just zonk your dog out with meds. Luckily, like you said, 2021, that is not what we strive for with medication in any way, shape or form. We simply want to get your dog's uh, brain chemicals to a place where they can cope with these very normal um, stressors. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I'd love to hear your perspective on this too, but like in my experience, the most successful behavior modification sessions that I do with clients are after meds have already been brought into the equation, right? And like, not all dogs need meds. I'm not saying that, but a lot of them do when they come to me and they bit several people, right? And like, once the meds are involved, I can be like, do this, this, and this. And the owner's like, oh my God. I'm like, I know, isn't it wonderful? But like, as trainers, we have to acknowledge that like the, the 
what we can give you, what we can offer you is not going to be as useful if the dog is struggling neurologically. Yes, because it's when a being is stressed, that is not the place for learning to take place. In addition, if a being is in fight or flight mode, that is not the place for learning to take place. And the thing about medication is that it gets a dog's brain or a human's brain. We love human meds too, if we, whoever needs them. Um, it puts the dog's brain into a place where they are not in a, oh my gosh, my life is ending mode. And they're not in fight or flight and they're not having a panic response. They're able to perceive the trigger, the stranger in the home, and they're able to think and learn and process and do training. And without that pharmaceutical intervention, that little help, they would not be able to do that. And therefore training could not take place. Yeah. So uh, moral of the story is, is that meds can be a very effective um, tool, right? But obviously you need to work with the veterinary behaviors to get started there. So um, let's, let's give the listeners some ideas for um, kind of the human end, right? Like, okay, you're out in the world, you're at a friend's house and like, clearly the dog is struggling with your presence. Like what can we be doing with our behavior to make it easier for the dog? So it's so important to remember that humans are primates and we are frontal and we love direct eye contact. We love leaning. We love reaching. Our hugs are, you know, forward facing. All of our natural primate body language can be perceived as threatening in the dog world, unfortunately. So we, with the best of intentions, especially for a dog who's a little fearful or nervous, are going to be very, very scary and threatening to a dog. Um, I would say that the best thing that you can do, and it's very hard, but is try to ignore them. And even more specifically, keep your, definitely avert your eyes, keep your shoulders facing away, keep your gaze away from the dog. Um, definitely no reaching anything like that. And just try to be as non-confrontational with your body language as possible. Yeah. And something that happens a lot that I think is so hard for us humans to wrap our brains around is that like, just because the dog is coming to sniff you does not mean that they want you to look, reach, pay attention to them. So, you know, if there's a dog who has very scared body language, their tail is low, their ears are back. You're seeing lots of whale eye and they come over to sniff you. The greatest thing you can do is pretend that it's not happening. Yeah. That's called info gathering where, because again, the dogs take uh, the world in through their nose. And so they're coming over to check you out. That is not unfortunately a solicitation of attention or, um, you know, an, of interaction of asking to be said hello to. Yeah. I find that it's so interesting because like, you know, now that we're gathering more and we're out in the world, my friends are always surprised that like, I don't interact with dogs at places. Um, <laughs> totally. It's very intentional. It's very intentional, right? Because like, once you know body language, you can't unknow it. And like nine times out of 10 in social settings, most of the dogs that I encounter pretty stressed, right? And like, it's not, I'm not approaching dogs that are stressed, right? And like, I love dogs, but I also honor and recognize dogs as individuals and I read what they want or don't want from me. So, you know, for all of you listening that love dogs and you really just want to pet every dog, don't, right? Because they don't want it, right? Like, don't make it about you. If you really love dogs, make it about the dogs and what they really want and honor that. Well, and what's so funny is that 
once the dog learns you're the one who's not going to be reaching for them, not going to be making direct eye contact, not looming over them, they're like, oh, you're safe. And then they, they gravitate to you. You know, I'm sure you get it all the time with your clients when we come in and we ignore the dog and we might drop some treats, toss some treats, and we just totally have our body language completely um, relaxed and away from the dog. And the dog warms up very quickly because they learn very quickly, oh, you're not a threat, you're safe. And the, you know, pet parents are like, what? You know, they never warm up to somebody this quickly. This is so surprising. And it's not because we have this like secret energy. It's just because we know how to make ourselves not threatening. Yeah. And I think that happens all the time. My clients are like, how does this work? I'm like, oh, it's just because I know every single thing to do to make the dog feel comfortable. Right. right. Like, <laughs> right. Just thousands of hours of practical application. Yeah. That's it. That's Which it. unfortunately we cannot ask like uncle Joe or like aunt Susie to replicate. We can try our best, but it absolutely helps being a pet professional and knowing what to do yeah. and what not to do. Absolutely. Okay. So do you have any final thoughts on stranger danger? What do you want to tell the listeners? We didn't cover this, but it's so critical. Do not have strangers hand your dogs, your, your fearful dogs treats from their hand. So this is the best intended, but sometimes the most damaging thing that you can do if your dog is nervous around people, because of course it's great in theory. And, and the theory behind it is correct in that we do want to associate strangers with good stuff and that good stuff is usually going to be food. However, when we ask our dog to approach the scary thing and take the treat from the scary thing's hand, that creates a lot of conflict. And that puts the dog into a position that they did not want to be in. And then once the treat is gone, suddenly, oh crap, I am way too close to the scary thing. And unfortunately on the human end too, then the dog takes the treat and the human goes, oh yay, they're right here. They go to pet. The dog lands a bite. So we definitely recommend two options. Either you feed the dog while they're looking at the stranger, which I, for me is my top preference, um, especially starting out, or you have the stranger toss treats for your dog, but it's just not worth creating that conflict and putting that dog into a position that they would not be choosing if it weren't for the food. Yeah, no. And there's just, there's so much room for error in that. Right. And like, you know, I can think of a, a Belgian Malinois, Simone, shout out to her. She taught me a very valuable lesson in that. Right. Because I did have food. I was sitting down. She put her paws up to get the food and then she panicked and she snapped at my face. Thankfully I moved my face and she didn't land a bite and I learned a lot, but everyone, right. Like food is great, but food in strangers' hands, when it comes to stranger danger, is like a huge no-no for so many reasons, right? So, you know, and again, we don't want to just be creating more conflict. Like, hey, have sketchy feelings and eat food. Like, that's not what we want. That's not what we want at all. <laughs> totally. And remember, distance is your friend. If your dog wants to, to be away from the person that is fine and that is good, creating distance from the person is good, you will start to notice when your dog is choosing to spend more time around strangers without reactions with loose and relaxed body language, you'll start to see that happen. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, how can listeners connect with you? The best place is going to be on Instagram where you and I found each other, JW dog training on Instagram, uh, jwdogtraining.com. If you're interested in virtual training. 
Amazing. Thank mm-hmm. you so much for chatting all about stranger danger. I feel like we could go on. Like maybe we just need to do a follow-up episode. We a hundred percent could go on. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you need help with your dog's behavior, you can learn more about our training services at agoodfeelingdogtraining.com. We post training inspiration and training tips almost daily over on the Instagram at agoodfeeling underscore NCO. If you like this podcast, we would be so grateful if you could share it with a friend or family member who could benefit from all of the information. Um, It's been a total delight. We love this podcast so much. And thank you so much for listening to Disorderly Dogs.